This Week in Retronauts, what is a man? found a perfect format and design on Nintendo Entertainment System. Even at its weakest, that is, Simon's Quest, the NES trilogy nevertheless enjoyed a perfect combination of style and mechanics, with one perfectly complementing the other. Castlevania, however, did not fare so well when it ventured onto other platforms and adopted other formats. Arcade spin-off Haunted Castle turned out to be a clumsy and heinously unfair exercise in player abuse, while Castlevania The Adventure for Game Boy lacked the balance and refinement to match its superb visuals and music. The mechanics and feel of classic Castlevania really were tied to the NES hardware, its color palette, its sprite sizes and limitations, its distinct audio processor, and the crazy add-on chips Konami tech wizards like Hidenori Maizawa cobbled together to help power the games. But as with all things, time marched along and Konami was eventually forced to leave the NES behind. The series ended up putting in an appearance on all three next-generation consoles, the Super NES, the Genesis, and the PC Engine CD-ROM 2. On each platform, the games had their own distinct character and style. Curiously though, the games that had the most in common with the NES trilogy weren't on Super NES. Both Bloodlines for Genesis and Rondo of Blood for PC Engine took their cues from Castlevania 3 and attempted to build on that game's classic style, and they did a bang up job of it. On Super NES however, Konami's design team went in a completely different direction. Led by programmer Masahiro Ueno and designer Kazumichi Ishihara, neither of whom had any previous experience with the series. The Super Castlevania 4 team created a game completely unlike any previous Belmont adventure. Super Castlevania 4 was slower than its predecessors, more methodical. Simon Belmont had never been the most nimble protagonist, but on Super NES he moved at a downright glacial pace. His movement felt almost marionette-like, with a huge sprite jointed at the waist. He was far more capable and versatile than his NES incarnation had been, but he moved in a bizarre manner, his upper and lower bodies rarely functioning in harmony. Nevertheless, Super Castlevania IV remained faithful to the fundamental design principles of its 8-bit forebears. As strangely as Simon navigated the world, that world was designed around both his skills and his limitations. That was the secret behind the success of the NES games, of course, and it served the game well on Super NES. The 8-bit Belmonts could only move in a stiff, clearly defined manner, but everything around them was key to those traits. Enemies never overwhelmed cautious players, and stages were exactingly built to push the Belmonts to their limits, but never exceed them. So too was this the case for Super Castlevania IV. Simon's sluggish, precise movements were an equal match for the monsters who inhabited Dracula's castle. Perhaps more than a match, in fact, 
as the most common criticism leveled at the game is that it's a bit too easy for seasoned players. Part of that came from the fact that Simon's skills with the whip had grown exponentially. Rather than being limited to direct, head-on attacks, he could now attack in eight directions, hold his whip aloft as a sort of makeshift shield, and even use it as a grappling wire in specific situations. This in turn was made possible by the fact that the Super NES controller had twice as many face buttons as its predecessor. The limited number of buttons on Nintendo's first console meant that complex sub-actions in games like Castlevania had to be accommodated for in different ways. Some developers tried to use the NES's chiclet-style start or select buttons for action, as with Sunsoft's Batman, almost invariably to terrible effect. Konami recognized the fact that trying to press select and start in the heat of action made for a piss-poor gaming experience, so they set Simon's secondary weapons to up and B. This made for quick, efficient, and above all ergonomic controls on the NES, but it also meant that Simon couldn't attack upward. With Super Castlevania IV, however, Sub-weapons could be mapped to their own button, giving Simon considerable range of motion with his whip. anything, Super Castlevania IV didn't really change enough to make full use of Simon's new capabilities. His defensive whip hold maneuver rarely came in useful for anything but blocking fireballs from, say, bone pillars, and far fewer enemies than you might expect demanded vertical or diagonal whip attacks. That undoubtedly had to do, at least in part, with the fact that Simon was so much larger in proportion to the screen dimensions on Super NES. His 16-bit sprite was nearly as tall as his 8-bit iteration which left far less room for enemies to share the screen with him, and resulted in much less time to react. No doubt Simon's growth spurt was also the root of the game's relative slowness and easiness. The game's designers had to rebalance the action in order to prevent players from being overwhelmed by monsters who would attack with far too little time to repair. So they erred on the side of lenience and toned down the difficulty rather than leaving players to flail. Anyway, just because Super Castlevania IV moved at a slower pace didn't mean it wasn't every bit as memorable as its predecessors. Structurally, it borrowed heavily from Castlevania III, with the first half of the adventure concerning Simon's journey to the castle, and the second half switching to a macro-view map of his sojourn through the Castlevania itself. Given that this was Simon's tale, Super Castlevania IV effectively served as a reimagining of the original Castlevania, expanded in the style of Castlevania III. It even bore the same Japanese title as the original, Akumajo Dracula making the intention quite clear. It was neither the first alternate version of the NES classic nor the last, but certainly it's one of the most unique. 
Beyond the new control scheme, Super Castlevania IV demonstrated a more subdued style in general. The visuals adopted earth tones and muted pastels, as would be the style for many Super NES games. Enemies grew in size along with Simon, taking on a more rounded and organic look than the Castlevania tradition. Common enemies like skeletons and medusas and axe knights retain some of their classic behaviors, but with a different look and speed and feel. just look more mellow than its neon predecessors, it sounded it too. Unlike the sawtooth prog rock ditties of the NES games, Super Castlevania IV switched musical genres to jazz. Its soundtrack just might be the most unique on the system, a low-tempo rock-jazz fusion heavy on flutes, pipe organs, and plucked strings. While it used the same Super NES sample effects heard in countless other games, no game I've ever played on the console affected the same chill style that Masanori Oodachi and Taro Kudo used here. Super Castlevania IV's designers were also eager to show off the console's hardware tricks. One of the most memorable sequences, not only in the game, but on Super NES as a whole, comes in the fourth stage, which isn't any great shakes in terms of platforming, but stands out as a glorious showcase for the console's advanced capabilities. The fourth level of the game includes a dizzying tunnel whose walls appear to be revolving around Simon, a rotating room where you must make effective use of grappling points as the floors become walls and vice versa, and a bizarre rock monster that shrinks as you whip it. It all just amounts to showing off, but coming as early as it did in the Super NES's life, that showing off had a huge impact on new players. It was the kind of thing you could show your Genesis-owning friends and say, check this out. Super Castlevania IV made more meaningful use of tech, though. The swinging clock pendulums of Castlevania III became massive chandeliers, for example. And enemies, despite being larger in size, appeared in larger numbers as well. Wild set pieces livened things up, such as the massive spiked gear that chased Simon up the clock tower. Super Castlevania IV even introduced elements that would become standard fixtures for the series, including theme of Simon, the memorable music from stage one. Also debuting here were future mainstay enemies such as Dullahan, Slagra, Gaibon, along with things like the concept of a library stage. Make no mistake though, these are the few things that did carry over to future games. Despite a few rough edges, Super Castlevania IV presented a fascinating new style for the series to pursue, and it was one that future designers and directors promptly ignored. Bloodlines and Rondo of Blood went for more of a classic approach, and the 2D games that followed carried on in the Rondo vein. The closest the series ever came to a reprise of Super Castlevania IV was the X68000 remake of the original Castlevania, which came to the US as Castlevania Chronicles. It's not an exact match for this Super NES adventure, but it's similar in spirit and pacing. 
Well, there were also the Lords of Shadow titles, whose developer Mercury Steam claimed to have been heavily influenced by Castlevania IV, though you wouldn't really know it to play the games. Ultimately, Super Castlevania IV was little more than a minor detour in the series' history, a road not taken. But its uniqueness and scarcity make it all the more precious within the series. And given how scarce a resource Castlevania has become in recent years, that makes it precious indeed. I'm Jeremy Parrish. You can follow me on Twitter as GameSpite or at usgamer.net and GameboyWorld.com. Retronauts, of course, can be found at usgamer.net and retronauts.com. We're basically on every form of social media imaginable as Retronauts, and of course, the podcast is funded through beautiful acts of charity at www.patreon.com/retronauts. Thanks for listening and for your support. <laughs> <laughs>